immersive cultural enrichment on board and on shore, freshly prepared regional cuisine, Viking sails the rivers of the world and takes travelers to the heart of iconic destinations. Discover more at viking.com. Learn how to plan, invest, and live smarter with the Raymond James For What It's Worth podcast. Featuring insights from leading professionals, you'll get the latest in wealth management, market commentary, and engaging research. Listen today at raymondjames.com podcast. I'm Jace Lacob, and you're listening to Masterpiece Studio. While Prince Albert struggles with his role as Queen Victoria's Prince Consort, his charismatic older brother, the new Duke of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, swans his way through the courts of Europe. Ernest loves wine, women, and music, and though he might be a bit of a rogue and a scoundrel, he's still a lovable one. Hans. Albert. Are you all right? Uh, yeah. Um, the Marquis and I are talking about livestock. She prefers goat's milk for bathing. <laughs> Much like his late father, who died in the arms of a prostitute, Ernest prefers the more illicit pleasures of royal court life. But lately, the consequences of some of those liaisons have caught up with him. It's most unfortunate, of course, that the women who carry this disease do not present their symptoms so evidently. Is there a cure? I cannot promise that. But there is a new treatment that I believe is most efficacious. Stricken with syphilis after an encounter with a French courtesan, Ernest nevertheless remains the charming center of attention wherever he roams. The young duke stumbles drunkenly towards maturity in his backhanded pursuit of the Duchess of Sutherland. Actor David Oakes relishes the role. The burden that Ernest has to bear is that no one ever takes any time to listen to his problems and his concerns. And yet he spends all his time trying to make everybody else happy. He's, he's deeply alone in that world. We spoke with Oakes about playing Victoria's deviously charming Ernest, why the German princes are like Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket, and what's next for Ernest and Harriet's seemingly doomed romance. And we are joined this week by Victoria star David Oakes. Welcome. Hello. Nice to be here. Uh, in Daisy Goodwin's script for Ernest's first appearance on Victoria, she describes him as, quote, dark and more knowing than his brother Albert. What was your first impression with the character when you read the script? Uh, well, having known Tom Hughes for about nine and a half, ten years now since we first played Lovers. As soon as it said more knowing than Tom, I was all on board. I thought that was a great idea. <laughs> I came onto the job um, through a director friend of mine, Sandra Goldbacker, who directed episodes four and five of the first season. I'd just done an episode of Endeavour with her. And she was very kind enough to give me a call and said, uh, there's this character, he is dark and more knowing than his brother and he's going to have lots of fun with lots of women at court and get some kind of sexually transmitted disease. And so naturally I thought of you and that was two <laughs> years ago and uh, here I am, pox ridden and uh, having fun in all the courts of the country. <laughs> well, I've read that the, the chameleonic Ernest is your favourite of all the characters you've played to date. Uh, can you talk about why you're so enamoured with him? Um, he is, he's fun. I mean, that's the thing with him. Everybody likes him. He's really charming. He gets to do all the 
the sword fighting and the horse riding and kisses all the prettiest girls and... Uh, I mean, who else is there to be in this show, really, if you don't get to do that? I mean, I, he's fun. That's it. It's as simple as that. How much research did you do in terms of preparing for the role? Um, I knew a fair bit about the Victorian period, not much about Ernest, but I made up for it before we started filming the second season. I flew out to uh, to Saxe-Coburg, to where he governed. Um, spent four nights living in a schloss there and went to see his two palaces at Ehrenberg and Kallenberg and, yeah, got to see where they were. And was rather upset to find that Albert has a statue right in the middle of town and Ernest, although he ran the place, has a bigger one but sort of up on the hill outside the park near the opera house. And I kind of feel like that should be changed because Ernest is cool and Albert's a bit wet. Uh, what what was the most interesting or surprising thing that you discovered about Ernest? There, there's no biography of his life that has been translated into English. There is there's a recent one that was written that's only in German, which I've sort of been trying to bash through. So I've sort of been picking up facts about him slowly and trying to sort of draw parts of that across to the show. I think this season, because we explore his sexuality and uh, the repercussions that he has uh, had placed upon him through that, no one was quite sure whether he had hereditary syphilis, whether or not he had some kind of VD that he passed on to his wife made her infertile i think what i like about him is that the muddiness of the historical facts that we have about him make him even more intriguing and also from a drama perspective enables us to sort of reinterpret him much more freely than perhaps victoria and albert who we know such a great deal about he's an enigma in how he behaved in a much greater sense than the others are now that we're halfway through this second season, how would you describe Ernest's arc? Has he changed at all from the carefree playboy we met at the start of the first season? Was he ever a carefree playboy? That's the question. I oh. mean, it's, I think, has he changed? His affection for Harriet, I think, has not changed. And I think that's what's so charming about him. He's a man that is prepared to be sexually free with with certain French ladies in, in Louis-Philippe's court, but also has an undying love and affection for another woman. He is he's both sides of a very sexy coin. <laughs> That's ridiculous, but kind of true. I mean, Harriet has definitely awakened something within him, a sense that he might need to at least grasp at maturity. Yeah. Has love or, if not love, the deep complexity of a love that can't be transformed him? I think so. I think that's certainly the tr- the journey that we see over this second season. I think you see a that darkness really hitting home. I think one of the favourite scenes that I shot uh, was the one when he's lying in the wild garlic, just staring up into the sky, reminiscent to the poster from Boyhood. Um, it's that moment where you have a man coping with uh, the the disease that he has got, uh, realizing that the love of his life is now available and that the universe seems to be conspiring against him at every turn, despite having the best intentions and not being allowed to act on them in the past. From here on in, it's there's a certain amount of suffering that Ernest has to endure, and whether it ends up happily or after, you will just have to wait and see. I'm glad you mentioned uh, the scene in the woods where he lies among the flowers. And, um, I, I, I do not know if you are aware... But... Harriet Sutherland's husband has died. I did not know that. He broke his neck whilst hunting. 
Poor Harriet. Victoria would like her to return to court. I think perhaps it is too soon. What do you think? It's, to it's me, lovely, one of the, the most beautiful scenes in the entire season, if not the show. Um, you likened it to the, to the poster from Boyhood, but what emotion did you try to evoke in that scene? Um, it's not one emotion. It's, it's that, it's, it's one of those moments, I think this is when drama's really good, is when you see a character discover life-shattering information. He is, he's there holding the secret of his, his disease. He's there confronted with the fact that the woman he loves is not only now available, but was also probably hurting in a way she's never hurt before. He's, he's perplexed, he's baffled, he doesn't know how to respond. And his brother is there, still just harping on about Victoria being a bit moody that day and needing another hairbrush. Um, it's, it's that sort of... The burden that Ernest has to bear is that no one ever takes any time to listen to his problems and his concerns, and yet he spends all his time trying to make everybody else happy. He's, he's deeply alone in that world. And never more so than in that moment in The Wild Garlic. You've likened the relationship between Ernest and Albert to the dynamic between Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> yeah, uh, I did. Can you explain <laughs> what you mean by this? Well, Pinocchio uh, goes through life doing what he wants to do, making mistakes, and Jiminy Cricket's there on his shoulder saying, oh, Pinocchio, you shouldn't have done that. Like Ernest is very much Albert's conscience. Um, it's the person that... Albert turns to when he has doubts and concerns. Um, and at least in episode three of the series, I was dressed all in green. So there you go. They've got loads of similarities. <laughs> One brother seems to embody excess and almost bacchanalia, while the other is, is austere and almost ascetic. Why are these two brothers so different, do you feel? Um, well, I think Daisy has liked to explore the, the paternal differences that they have. I think often when you grow up close to a sibling, you define yourself by what they are and fill in the gaps that they might leave behind. Um, I think Ernest and his father, also Ernest, were so similar that Albert became more recluse. I think it's dramatically interesting. I think it's as simple as that. I think if I was alive in the Victorian time and I was a, a member of a royal dynasty... I'm almost certain I would be more like Ernest. It'd be such a waste not to be, wouldn't it? The the rapport between Ernest and Albert feels very lived in and authentic. Uh, you mentioned you previously worked with Tom Hughes on Trinity. Mm -hmm. uh, what is it like working with Tom and, and playing brothers here? I think that uh, we both work in completely different ways uh, as actors. And I think the fact that the characters are different means that that sort of antagonism actually sort of plays out quite nicely on screen. Um He's, I mean, he's, he's not method, but he sort of goes down that deep, indulgent uh, sort of darkness uh, that I think Albert sort of, he sort of festers in that sort of world, but then is also very precise with how he does it. So he makes a decision and then sort of sticks to it relatively rigidly. Um, I quite like to be a little bit more bacchanalian, to use your world, word, um, and sort of try and sort of dance around that. And I... It's an interesting one. I'd, it'd be nice to work with him again on a different project where we're playing different kinds of characters to see whether or not we would still work with that dynamic. I mean, when we did Trinity, it was it was his first television job. It was my second television job. And the manner in which we worked then was so different to the actors that we've we've become now. Next, you need to play antagonists of yeah. each other. Well, I mean... Lovers, then brothers, then, yeah. you know, 
something else that rhymes a bit with others. Before this next question, a brief word from our sponsors. The Great Lakes, the Arctic and Antarctica, iconic destinations around the world. Viking offers opportunities for discovery with a shore excursion in every port. Learn more at viking.com. Looking to relive the first two seasons of Masterpieces Victoria? Get caught up with PBS Passport, member benefit from your local PBS station. To learn more, visit pbs.org slash getpassport. Ernest and Lady Sutherland began their complicated pas de deux last season. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is it about the two of them, do you feel, that has captivated the imagination of viewers in the way that it has? Well, it's Margaret Clooney's hair, obviously. (laughs) Um, That's a big part of it. It's it's a huge part of it. I mean, she did a show where she was bald once, and people just turned off straight away. Um, (laughs) I mean, again, Margaret's a funny one, because I'd worked with her before as well. That's what's sort of been really fun about this job, is the two characters that I relate with most in the show are two actors that I've worked with before. Um, and Margaret was an endeavour with me. Um, I think Margaret and I get on really well as friends, and we've been friends for three, four years now, four and a half years. Um, and I think because you have that sort of shorthand of friendship and you respect each other's acting abilities, you actually get to play on screen, and I think I think the audience can see that, and I think that, I think that sort of pays huge dividends, really. One of my favourite of the scenes that you have with, with Margaret Clooney is when Ernest and Harriet dance together at the costume ball. May I write to you, please? There's no point in why you're dancing with me. Because I cannot forget. Do you feel that that scene captured that sense of a frustrated longing and thwarted desire between the two of them? I think it did. I think, I think that's what's also fun about all of those balls is these were rare occasions when... Uh, men and women who were either not married or not married to each other were allowed to interact. And that's that's as sexy as the past really got in, in sort of proper sort of formal occasions. I mean, that's, what's the, that's the joy of Jane Austen, is every time you have a ball, it's not like, oh, here's another fusty ball with, with like corsets and prancing around in square quadrilles and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's the moment where you get to flirt. And, and the great thing is back then is you'd get your dance card and you'd write down the list of people. And so you'd know when the slow dance was coming and you knew when the sort of slightly sexy raunchy bit where you get to hold the hand was coming. So you'd choose the right partner for that. And you'd, it's, it's naughty. It's as racy as you were supposed to get in public. And I think, I think that scene is really nice, the fact that they find those stolen moments within that dance to, to whisper sweet nothings in each other's directions. Ernest joins Victoria and Albert in France, but while they're contending with Louis-Philippe's plans for the young Spanish queen, Ernest gets up to, shall we say, his usual tricks. <laughs> uh, it's, it's here that he contracts syphilis. Uh, how does the condition shake the foundations of Ernest's world? I think when he's in France, he is coping with a despair and... A real, so he's just, he's just become the duke. So his father's just died. So he's coping with the death of his father, the responsibility of having his own throne and kingdom to govern. Uh, he's still coping with the fact that Albert thinks it's all about him, despite the fact that all that happened to Albert was he lost his dad and didn't have to take the responsibility of a throne. Um, and I think we meet him in Paris, having drunk a lot, having partied quite a bit. And whether or not it's that particular woman that gave him his minor qualms, 
there's certainly probably a few women that he has met along the way that could have transmitted that little joy in his pants. Well, I mean, given his prevalence for uh, a partying, I'd be surprised that this is the first uh, sexually transmitted disease that Ernest has contracted. Yeah. Uh, why is this one so specifically different for him? Uh, well, or is it just the timing? I think it's the timing with the loss of, of Harriet's husband with the Duke of Sutherland. Um, I mean, certainly Leopold was having courtesans on the side. That their, Albert and his father was. In real life, Albert had an incredibly healthy sex drive with Victoria, and who knows whether or not it was sated elsewhere. Um, these are secrets that will be held by history for all time. So I don't know. I mean, why this one? It's timing. Um, and the fact that Daisy wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) Among the potential treatments prescribed for poor Ernest is a steam room full of mercury vapour, which must have been ghastly. Mm -hmm. Uh, What went through your head when you were filming this scene? Um, Yeah, it was a funny scene. It was a really cold day. We filmed it in, um, where was it? It was a Wentworth Woodhouse near Sheffield, and it's sort of in the cellar, the stone cellar. And it was really, really cold. And they kept on spraying me down with water to try and make me look like I was sweating. Um, And all I could think about was the last time we were there in season one, we did a sword fight and we got Pizza Hut takeaway at lunchtime. So it's an interesting (laughs) thing. You're there, you're cold, you're shivering, you're wet, you're trying to hide your gut and all you can think about is a stuffed crust. Uh, uh, Harriet's (laughs) husband has died after breaking his neck during a hunting accident. Uh, Mm -hmm. This would seem to clear a path for Ernest, but it seems from Ernest's expression at the doctor's surgery that there is no future for them. Is true heartbreak a new experience for Ernest? Most certainly, yes. It's as simple as that. Um, And I think heartbreak is something that should never be underestimated, that you should hope never to have thrust upon you and certainly shouldn't ever have it thrust upon you more than once. Um, yeah, it's a very dark thing. So, yeah, as to where where his relationship with Harriet goes, not wanting to say anything more about the rest of this series, but it's got a long way to go yet. They, yeah, they have a hell of a ride to Harriet and Ernest. Uh Ernest was previously a a capital R romantic figure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Given this new complication, do you see him as more of a tragic figure? Yes. Um, And I think even more tragic a figure by design because he maintains his veneer. He keeps being Albert's confidant and he keeps providing strength to Harriet as much as he can. And won't allow the reality of his condition to ruin his life and when he realises that it is going to be a barrier he does the noble thing Um, yeah, it's tragedy it's a grand narrative of despair and tragedy It's it's a great bit of depressing Sunday night drama, but at least everybody else is happy, so that's all right. (laughs) David Oakes, thank you so much My absolute pleasure. Thank you for talking to me and tolerating my nonsense. And now, Victoria creator Daisy Goodwin joins us for a look at the real-life afflictions and affections of Prince Ernest.
Now, this episode has a personal connection to you as Dr. Trail was your great-great-great-grandfather. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. I mean, I. it's so interesting because this is the one part of history I was really determined to get into the um, series uh, because I'd written a book about my Irish family and I discovered the story of Dr. Trail, which was, to me, a revelation because even though I'd studied history, I knew very little about Ireland and, and almost nothing about the potato famine. And when I went over there um, to Skull, where he lived, I discovered his diary. And it was the most extraordinary thing to find out that this man, who is sort of distantly related to me, um, had, he'd been a very rabid evangelical Protestant, and he had thought that the Catholics were little more than heathen and had almost nothing to do with them up until um, the first signs of the famine. A lot of the language I use in that episode by Trevelyan and by Peel was actually words I took from contemporary documents. So it's extraordinarily accurate in, you know, you think I'm making the British government into hard-hearted villains. You know, they, they were probably even more hard-hearted than I've made them. So it was such an extraordinary story. So I wanted to use Trail to to really show the humanity of one man who had been part of this Protestant establishment who realises that, you know, what they are doing is completely wrong and he sacrifices his career and in the end his his family and also his life to do the right thing and he he turns his rectory and uh, into a soup kitchen and in the end he actually dies of... Um, famine fever. And after he dies, the Church of Ireland, which is the Protestant orthodoxy in Ireland, um, sues his widow for the damage done to the rectory um, by creating it into a soup kitchen. That's vile. It's a vile story. I mean, it's it's such an extraordinary story. And of course, I was hugely relieved <laughs> in a sense that when I read about his story to realise that actually he was somebody who'd done the right thing because it would have been awful to discover that he'd been on the side of the awful Protestant um, people who were prepared to let the, the, the Catholic peasantry starve to death because it was convenient. I mean, clearly, you you know, we should see him as a, a true hero. Uh, do you hope that, that this will shine a light on what Dr. Trail actually did and, as you say, sacrificed during this, this time? I mean, certainly in England, I think a lot of people, when it went out, people were astonished because I think nobody really learns about the potato famine in Britain because, I don't know, it's not really taught. I, you can imagine why, because it's this terrible genocide that basically happens in the country next door and it's our fault. You know, we did nothing to help. Certainly when the programme went out, people were embarrassed and ashamed to realise how badly we had behaved. Given the situation in Ireland, why was so much grain being shipped to England? Well, it's it's quite complicated, but basically what was happening was that, um, you know, the Irish peasantry lived on potatoes, but most of the land was in the hands of Protestant landowners who grew wheat, and they found that they could get very high prices for their wheat um, in, in London because of something called the Corn Laws, which was basically a tariff, which meant that corn, um, you know, was, you couldn't import corn until um, domestic corn had got to a certain level. So, I don't know, you know, six shillings a bushel or whatever it was, which meant that, you know, that kept 
the price of bread really high at a time when, you know, people were starving. So you've got all these people living in industrial cities like Manchester and Birmingham, places like that, who aren't living off the land, who don't have, you know, a patch where they can grow potatoes or keep a pig or something. So they are dependent on on buying food. And yet the system is rigged to, you know, benefit the landowners who are growing the wheat and the corn. So, so they will have perpetually high prices. And that's why Robert Peel, um, at the end of the um, at the end of the famine episode, says he's got to repeal the Corn Laws because he knows that the only the only just thing to do is to get rid of this tariff, which basically makes bread incredibly expensive for for everybody and only benefits the rich landowning class. Fact or fiction? Did Ernest have syphilis? No, that's fact. Um, it's very sad. Uh, Ernest did have syphilis. Um, he was somebody who, I think, you know, had had purple patches where he probably consorted with prostitutes, and I think that he contracted syphilis. Um, although he outlived his brother Albert, um, I mean, syphilis wasn't fatal, but it obviously had ter- terrible effects and. As we see in the show, I mean, its real issue was that if you gave it, if you got married and you had another attack, you could infect your partner. And a lot of Victorian men didn't really worry about that. They just carried on and, you know, infected their partners, you know, (laughs) didn't really care about it. But I was trying to show that Ernest, you know, when it comes to Harriet, he is a man of honour. And even though he loves her and and wants to more than anything to marry her he knows that by doing so he could hand her a death sentence so it's a really it's a really victorian dilemma this um and I, one that i found really interesting um and 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 poor man it must have been awful for him i mean he's forced to sit in a steam room full of mercury vapor uh was this a traditional method of treatment and, and what were the side effects of such a monstrous course I talked to a historian of sexually transmitted diseases in the 19th century and I knew that mercury was the treatment but actually she said you know the really effective thing was mercury vapor which is this sort of yellow steam which I thought was extraordinary I mean and that made for a very good um, scene you know I thought oh how cinematic Um, I think it was horrible I think mercury would give people terrible headaches it could turn their skin yellow Um, and I think it was almost as toxic as syphilis. I think it probably did have some uh, remedial effects, but, you know, it wasn't a cure by any means. I was trying to show one of the kind of downsides of Victorian life, that, you know, here were men having unprotected sex and, you know, women were always blamed because you knew when a man had syphilis, but you couldn't always tell when a woman had syphilis. And women were always um, considered to be the guilty parties in this. Fact or fiction, Harriet Sutherland's husband died from a hunting accident. I'm afraid that's fiction again. Um, but I, I, in order to, to show, in order to illustrate Ernest's dilemma, I had to put Harriet in a position where she would be able to marry him because otherwise 
it would be too complicated, but I, I thought this would be a way of illustrating it. And also, of course, I wanted her to feel guilty because she felt responsible for her husband's accident. In reality, they were very happily married and lived um, very happily at Clifton um, in Royal Berkshire. And he died when he was 75 from an, an illness, correct? He did, yes. I'm, I, I, I'm afraid I've, I've taken a few liberties there. But <laughs> Harriet was very beautiful and looks um, strangely like uh, the actress Margaret Clooney who plays her in the series. Uh, fact or fiction, uh, was the sewage situation quite this dire in Buckingham Palace? Yes, yeah, so that's completely true. Buckingham Palace was literally a health hazard. Um, it, people used to go there and just literally walk around going, oh, what's that smell? Uh, the kitchens had, um, you know, was so unhygienic that, you know, if it rained, you couldn't use various rooms because there was this sort of seepage of um, sewage across the floor and stuff. So it was it was deeply, um, deeply rank, I would say, the downstairs part of Buckingham Palace. And even upstairs, uh, I think that some of the staterooms would quite often smell rather ripe. Um, you can imagine, you know, all this, you know, there's sewage, there's a lot of unwashed bodies, you know, people didn't have so many bars, um, you know, got all those guttering candles. It must have been quite, quite a sort of... <laughs> It must have smelled awful, actually. <laughs> so, um, uh, I yeah. So I think the sewage situation was terrible. And uh, Albert, of course, being a man who thinks practically, decides to sort it out. And you know, he 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 invites Chadwick in, uh, who's the commissioner of sanitation in London. And Chadwick's, uh, you know, saying how awful the sewage situation is in London because basically people were just throwing their sewage into the streets into the into sort of into streams which all led down into the river Thames and one of the streams um which i think was called the oh the the Tyburn spring actually flowed underneath uh uh Buckingham Palace so that's so you basically got a river of sewage flowing oh. underneath the palace so that's why albert decides to sort it out and he did indeed um install flushing lavatories throughout Buckingham Palace and was um True to his um, ideals of, of of democracy, he he installs a lavatory downstairs in the servants' quarter, which I think was, you know, entirely to his credit. Queen Victoria remains the ruler of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. That kingdom includes Scotland, and next week, for the first time, the young queen and her prince consort head north to the sweeping Scottish Highlands. And I think it's, it's wow, who would we be if we weren't who we are? Um, a life without duty um, and, and a freedom in that. And I, that's, it's the imagining, like, wow, what if this was really my life? Who would I be? And you can get lost in that make-believe and lost in that story that they live just for the night. Don't miss our special exploration of Queen Victoria's trip to Scotland in an upcoming episode of Masterpiece Studio, appearing in your podcast feeds next Sunday. The Victoria Sweepstakes is happening now through March 15, 2018. Enter daily at pbs.org sweepstakes for a chance to win the grand prize, a Viking ocean cruise for two adults in the British Isles. You may also win monthly prizes of Victoria merchandise. For official rules, including eligibility restrictions and prize limitations, visit pbs.org sweepstakes. Void where prohibited. 
Masterpiece Studio is hosted by me, Jace Lakob, and produced by Nick Anderson. Alicia Baitup is our editor. Suzanne Simpson is our executive producer. The executive producer of Masterpiece is Rebecca Eaton. Sponsors for Masterpiece on PBS are Viking Cruises and the Masterpiece Trust.